Welcome to Lung Cancer Considered, the podcast of the International Association for the Study of Lung Cancer, a global organization dedicated to research and practice advances in thoracic oncology. You can find all our podcasts on SoundCloud and ISLC.org and the newsroom. I'm your host, Dr. Narjos Flores. This is Dr. Narjos Flores, and I'm your host for this very special episode of Lung Cancer Considered. I'm the Associate Director of the Cancer Care Equity Program at Dina Farber Cancer Institute and an Assistant Professor of Medicine at Harvard Medical School. Today, we'll be discussing chronic toxicities associated with target therapy. In the last 10 years, we have seen a great investment in the treatment of lung cancer with the introduction of targeted therapy and immune checkpoint inhibitors. Our patients are benefiting from therapies for years, something that was considered not possible in the past. Appropriate biomarker testing and personalized medicine are key to the treatment of lung cancer. However, no treatment comes without side effects. In today's episodes, we will focus in on the chronic side effects of targeted therapy and how some potentially home remedies that I learned can help manage some of these side effects. Our guests today have extensive experience treating and surviving lung cancer, and they will provide a unique perspective when it comes to chronic toxicity and lung cancer survivorship. Before we start the conversation, I want to define chronic toxicity. So chronic toxicity refers to any notable health change that occurs over time after exposure to a particular drug. And the key part here is notable health change, any, which is a classification used to describe a drug that can result in toxic effects over time, toxic effects that we evolve over time, even when you have a low exposure. Chronic toxicity describes the symptoms and damages that occur from long-term exposures or by a high cumulative dose, particularly over time like targeted therapy. So after that little class about chronic toxicity, it is my pleasure to introduce our two guests today. Mrs. Kathleen Powers, Master's in Nursing and Advanced um, Nurse Practitioner Certified in Oncology, received a bachelor's degrees in the science of nursing for Georgetown University. She received a master's degree in adult primary care from Simmons College, and she has worked as an oncology nurse since 1998 in various settings. She has been practicing as a nurse practitioner in thoracic oncology at Dana Farber since 2009, and she specializes in the care of patients with EGFR, no small cell lung cancer. Welcome, Kathleen. Thank you, NJ. We also had the pleasure of hosting Mrs. Annabelle Gerwich, American author, New York Times best-selling, comedy actress, television host, most recognizable for her series Hostess on Diner and a movie on TVS, which my mother-in-law was a big fan of, an activist associated with environmental issues, secular human humanism, and lung cancer. And that's only to describe a little, a little of the many things that Annabelle continues to do. Since her diagnosis with lung cancer, Annabelle has been a fearless advocate for quality of life considerations for patients with lung cancer. Welcome, Annabelle. 
Thank you so much, NJ. And I'm really glad to be here with you, Kathleen. Thank you. I'm looking forward to talking with, with you both. Annabelle, many of us had the privilege to hear your lung cancer story. Could you share with our audience your journey and how you were diagnosed with lung cancer in the middle of the COVID-19 pandemic? Oh, thanks, NJ. Yes, you know, I, I came forward and shared this story in the New York Times first and then on Good Morning America during the pandemic because I wanted to make sure people went to their doctors, which we knew they weren't doing at that time. And that actually opened the door to entering the patient advocacy world. During the pandemic, my uh, child had just graduated from college, came home. We were uh, doing our quarantining and we were about to uh, combine households. And we went to get COVID tests. And we went to a little, uh, you know, uh, urgent care. And I mentioned that I had a little cough and I got talked into having an x-ray, which I wasn't planning to do at all. I was feeling really good health. It was just that the doctor was kind of cute. And I thought maybe he has a thing for older women. I thought it was like a little bit of, I was like, I'll stay here a little bit longer, get this x-ray. I mean, it was really completely nothing that I was uh, taking seriously, got this x-ray and uh, came back. The doctor came back and said, uh, there's, uh, you're great, go on your way. Uh, We happened to be on our way home when my car broke down on the side of a highway. This is where the story turns into like a zombie apocalypse movie. And we're on the side of the road. AAA isn't coming. It's the middle of the pandemic. And the doctor calls back and I thought he was calling me for a date, but no, he called to say he had misread uh, the results. He'd given me someone else's results. I had a mass on my lungs and that was so shocking. Also getting the news in front of my child, this was just so crushing. Um, couple months of testing and I find out that I have um, stage four uh, non-small cell lung cancer. It was really shocking. Uh, I'm not a smoker. And, um, and of course, I didn't know at the time lung cancer wasn't on my radar that you uh, can get lung cancer from what we now think are environmental causes, um, maybe some exposure to some kind of household chemical. We really don't know why I developed um, lung cancer, but this was the case and I set off on treatment. And uh, then then my story gets into the uh, toxicity issue. I was so fortunate enough to test positive, to have the ability to have biomarker testing and to uh, test for the uh, EGFR mutated lung cancer, which meant I could start treatment uh, on uh, osimertinib, which is sold under the name of Tegriso. And that's where my chronic toxicity story starts. But you tell me if you want me to start talking about that or if you have any questions you want to discuss the diagnosis. I think we can continue to discuss. We have several questions, but thank you so much for sharing your story. And I do agree that car broken down on the side of the road and you're getting the phone call 
certainly looks like uh, the beginning of some kind of zombie movie that will start playing in Netflix sometime. So yes. it's, and it's, you still remember those vivid moments, right? How that changed your life forever. And yes. many patients experience that. Yes, I think one of the things, the reason why I talk about that moment and, you know, when I was diagnosed and this, you know, speaks to the way we communicate with our providers. And one of the big issues that uh, we're talking about today in terms of chronic toxicities is that um, what happens, I think, when people get a diagnosis and as we know with lung cancer, very often, and this is, you know, an issue we're all concerned about is you get a diagnosis when it's stage four because lung cancer can go undetected. And so um, you're, you're, you're so shocked as a, as a, as a patient to get this life altering um, and late stage diagnosis and what happens is this causes uh, an immediate loss of a sense of competence as a person and your identity as a person. I felt I overnight, I was unsure of anything because if I didn't know if I could have this disease and a disease uh, that is at stage four and not know it, what else don't I know or can't I trust about myself? Overnight, I felt I, I, well, I had to stop driving. I felt I couldn't trust my, my judgment in driving. Um, I, I earn a living as a writer. I, suddenly felt like, well, how do I even know how to write a sentence? I have all my competences. I'm not exaggerating to say that at the very beginning, I was holding on to walls when I was walking, not because I was actually having a problem with um, walking, but I felt I wasn't sure if my legs would give out underneath me. This was how extreme a sense of identity I lost. And I think that's really important to think about because when we begin treatment and this kind of thing, it, it, uh, of course, I don't, I don't feel those things at this moment, but they are underlying. They're still in there. And when we begin treatment, we set off with treatment and we're talking to uh, our doctors and care teams, this is is um, makes a cognitive dissonance. Many of us, particularly those of us who on targeted uh, therapies, we might look like our former selves. We might sound like our former selves, but we are not our former selves. And this means that we, in communicating, we are not... Um, there has to be an acknowledgement that the person you're sitting opposite with may not be uh, what is necessarily what we sometimes call in writing writing world, and I think in the medical world too, a reliable narrator of our health, because we are not speaking the same language in terms of tolerability or toxicities or how we're even doing. We we have a, a, um, uh, an inability to necessarily even communicate 
well. So this is something I think is is not recognized or we don't want to say how we're doing. We can't give voice. We're fearful, um, even though we don't appear that way. And I think that it's 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 hard to uh, to recognize this as a I guess I said a cognitive dissonance because we look like our former selves. So yeah, thank you, Hanavel, for sharing that. And I think that's a very good segue for my question to Kathleen. And this is like unfortunately, and I think target therapy has revolutionized lung cancer, but. All of these directed therapies come with side effects. And we are, you know, more used to discussing side effects about chemotherapy because chemotherapy has been around for so long. But we are transitioning now a patients that will be in target therapy for a long time that may look different, you know, in person, but they're having all these chronic issues. Kathleen, you have seen the revolution of cancer therapies as a specialist in EGFR lung cancer. Mm-hmm. How will you describe the initial toxicities associated with EGFR-directed therapy? Uh, well, I would say the EGFR inhibitors have come a long way uh, over the years. When I started working in lung cancer in 2009, we used the earlier generation EGFR inhibitors such as gefitinib and erlotinib, which is also called Tarceva. And um, we saw significant toxicity. It, it was it was harder to take. Um, we saw a lot of rash, uh, like acne-like rash, especially on the the face and nose and chest. It could be a lot of white pimples, and this can be very distressing to patients. Obviously, um, there was also a lot more diarrhea, resulting in dehydration, discomfort, all the things that come with having an upset stomach. Uh, since the development of the third generation EGFR inhibitors like osimertinib, there's more selective inhibition of the of the EGFR protein. And so the good news is we get less effect on the normal EGFR proteins and, and less effect on the skin and the GI tract in the stomach. So although it's still distressing to experience those those side effects that do come with the newer EGFR inhibitors, it's less than it once was. So in that regard, I have hope that we're going in the right direction, but I do understand how it's hard to, to live with the, the side effects that they still do bring. Um, currently, the, the initial you know toxicity we see from the most commonly used EGFR inhibitor, which is, which is Tegriso or osimertinib, uh, is the rash. We we notice skin changes on the face and chest and arms. Uh, it can take a variety of uh, presentations like uh, anything from mild red bumps to pimples like teenage acne, which is just really hard to go through at any age. And it's usually the worst uh, in sun exposed areas. And so often the places that are, are you know visible to other people, face and arms, those are initial things. The diarrhea can occur in the beginning months on on uh, EGFR inhibitors, and um, other other things evolve over months as you're on it, and the chronic toxicity starts to show up. Some of these changes in the skin will go away, and some new ones will come up. And uh, I can go into that more a little later. But you know, af- after a few months, the skin on the face might clear up with good management with antibiotics and creams. And then you see more uh, later side effects on the skin, like dry skin or inflammation on the on the fingernails and around the nail beds. Those occur around six or eight months later, uh, 
for some people earlier, but most of the time after many months on treatment, people get used to how their hair looks and the EGFR inhibitors can change the texture and nature of the hair. Sometimes it's thinner, sometimes it grows curlier and just looks very different, which is um, which is, can be hard to get used to. But um, one good thing is sometimes eyelashes grow thicker. And I know a lot of women and men love that. It's, uh, it's one, one bonus. Um, and, and dry skin is present throughout the course, both initially and uh, as a later side effect. Initially, the, the the pills can affect other parts of the body, like the liver or the kidneys. And, you know, there's ways to manage that. If we're watching closely, we'll usually see those effects early on and, and know what to do about those. For the older population, I, I notice at the beginning, appetite loss and fatigue shows up right away when they start these pills. And uh, sometimes we have to adjust the dose of the pills to find the right dose for a certain um, patient. And that usually makes it much more tolerable and uh, helps us succeed at treating them for longer. Kathleen, I, I want to I wanna, uh, uh, speak to what you're saying. And I'm so glad you mentioned about the dosage because this is where I think the communication uh, lag can sometimes happen. And I want to say, of course, I think there's goodwill on everyone's part. Um, when I started my treatment, I started on 80 milligrams of uh, Tegriso a day. Yes. And uh, that was presented to me as the dosage that was effective. I immediately um, began having rashes, not just on my face, which wasn't so much on my face, but on my total body that were so distracting that I just couldn't concentrate. And I was waking up in the middle of the night, seeing blood streaks on my legs because I'd scratch oh. in my sleep. So I had immediate skin effects. I had such extreme diarrhea that one night um, I got up in the, I, I, in the middle of the night, I had been going to the bathroom all day and I passed out in the bathroom I was at that point oh. naked um, because I, I was trying to get to the bathroom so quickly. I, you know, it was, it was, it, it was Im Im impossible to get to the bathroom in time. And I passed out and my child found me in the bathroom, which was incredibly upsetting. And I want to say that during this time, and I was so tired, I was having such great fatigue, I wasn't telling my doctor, and this is something that I have heard in our, we have uh, private chat rooms for people. Um, uh, it's, it's, it's an incredibly fantastic thing. Um, the EGFR resistors founded by Ivy Elkins and Jill Feldman started this group. We're on Facebook. Patients all over the world are sign on at any time of the day and talk about how they're afraid to tell their doctors about these side effects because they haven't been told that there is any other dosage that is effective. So there's a silence here. And it wasn't until I was having so much fatigue and just waves of fatigue would come on. Some days I'd feel good. Um, but one day I'm on a walk uh, about three blocks from my home and I simply couldn't go any further. And I had to lay down on the sidewalk by the side of the street. And I had to 
lay there until I could get the strength to um, get home. And I thought to myself at that moment, you know, I'm not sure if um, this is my, is, is this, is this my, my life now? Is this living? Am I, I, cause I wasn't leaving the house. I couldn't, you know, be further from a bathroom for very long. And then as I lay there by the side of the road, I thought, you know what? I, I think I better say something. I'm not sure that this targeted therapy is for me. And of course, no one wants to go off the target therapy. We, we know what a mm-hmm. miracle it is. Um, and so finally, I said something to my doctor and he said, oh, okay, well, we'll, we'll try it at 40 milligrams. I was like, there's a, there's a choice here. No one, no one told me that there might be that possibility. And immediately these side effects lessened. Now I, I go on these, you know, I participate as a, as a, as a patient in this community and I am often this person, I will see these posts. I'm afraid to tell my doctor I'm having, I said, you know what, uh, 40 might be right for you, but there is, and I understand. Yeah, there is, I, and I understand why you might not, you want to start at this higher level, but I think this is a really big issue because what happens is patients don't want to tell. And then also, even, you know, at this level, the question of tolerability means one thing to a person in treatment, and it means another thing to a doctor, uh, you know, even when this was going on before my doses were switched, I would go in for my, because it took about six months. So there were two other visits before I had the dosage lower. And my doctor would say, well, is it tolerable? And I didn't know what he meant. What is the measure of tolerability? And I only realized later we were speaking two different languages. I thought tolerability meant I was alive uh, I knew that there was shrinkage of the tumors. So I I said, yes, I said it's tolerable, even though um, I, I, I could not have continued my life in that way. I just didn't know that we weren't speaking the same language. And at this point, you know, I'm three years into treatment and I don't have as many side effects, but it can still happen. And um you know, this is uh, something that uh, I, 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 I am a, I'm an evangelist now about talking about this. And I'd like to talk about the sexual side effects too. But I mean, I wonder how you feel when you, when you hear this, is this an experience you've heard about Kathleen, about people not un- under-reporting? Thank you, oh. Annabelle, for sharing. I'm going to, you know, thank you for sharing. There's a lot of information there that we need yeah. to write yeah. down. Yes. I want to make sure that you know, our audience is for around the world. So I want to break down from your experience, several questions to Kathleen. So the first one, Kathleen, is was Annabelle's experience with side effects ordinary? Or is this something that we see in your clinics often? Well, I will say th- thank you for that, Annabelle. That is, there are so many great points in there. Um, I think the experience is, is both, there's so much variability in people's experience. And I think I you know, would say that an important question that Annabelle brings up is how do we define tolerability? And um, that's why we ask, is it tolerable to you? And we really, really want to hear the truth of how it's going um, at home. And, and I'll say to patients, 
you know, you tell me what is tolerable to you. And I explain to them that we don't want you suffering out symptoms uh, in order to get as much medicine as possible. And, you know, we want to make your life that, that, you know, the life that you're living on these medicines, the best it can be. And um, I think it's really important for all of us to talk honestly about uh, what's tolerable. I think Annabelle's experience is 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 very common. Um, you know, at first your body is getting used to these new medicines, and you're going through some some of the changes, the diarrhea, the the skin rash. Uh, many patients have minimal side effects, and we're quite pleased with that. And then patients who have the other end of the spectrum significant toxicity or a lot of the side effects, uh, we have great ideas to help mediate those. And that's why I think these conversations and close follow-up with your care team is crucial because if I have an idea of how to minimize the diarrhea with supportive medications or diet changes, I want Annabelle to have those, those tips. And I, I, you know, if, if your, if your care team is seeing patients taking these EGFR inhibitors uh, often, they'll know what works. And, and in terms of the rash, we expect a little bit of skin changes, but there are serious rash complications that we don't expect. Uh, I, I recently saw someone with a, a rash on her legs that was not a tigrisal rash, and we were you know, quick to say we need to evaluate that because that's not what tigrisal should have done. So it's really important to be in constant communication with your team and not not to have our patients suffering out side effects. I say that across the board, even when I'm practicing in my non-EGFR clinic, um, anybody getting chemotherapy for any lung cancers or any cancers throughout my years as a cancer nurse, we we don't expect you to feel terrible. We would like to help you if you do feel terrible. So a really good point from Annabelle that um, there are things to be done when side effects are really bothersome. Uh, I think you know, uh, uh, my older patients often experience severe fatigue and appetite changes, and they benefit greatly from a, a lower dose. And and uh, that could be as their liver has aged, they process the drug slower, and they're they're getting more buildup of the drug. Uh, some of my younger patients with a lot of sun exposure get a worse rash. And um, bringing them to the expert, you know, dermatologists can really maximize the greatest advances in dermatology care to make the rash so much more livable. And I really want to help people get to the right resources to uh, manage these side effects so we can live as, as well as possible while taking these pills. Kathleen and Annabelle, and I think a comment that I want to follow from Annabelle's story is, you know, our patients maybe afraid of disclosing. I think a lot of yes. patients listen to our podcast and I, I do have a very open door with my patients, but I know that they want to do everything they can, you know, to deal with the cancer, to stay afloat. And sometimes I think suffering is what the perception is that you need to suffer through cancer treatments. And I think we need to change that narrative that yes. we need to hold our patients in supporting Basing on their healthcare belief, and it was doable for them. And you and I have you. I think Adeline, you and I are very friendly on dose reduction and changes yes. to to help our patients. So, Kathleen, how will you approach a patient that you know may be afraid to tell you that is not tolerable, but they keep telling you it's okay? But you know, you have that gut feeling that tells you, hmm, I, I think there's something here more than I I know. 
Yes, yes, that comes up a lot. It comes up a lot and it varies from patient to patient and, and there's a lot of other factors that may be going into it, uh, patient's age or culture or, you know, should they be acting like a, a tough guy or uh, are they um, trying to show their family they're doing all they can? There's so many other factors that go into it. The way I approach it is, um, first of all, I, I reassure them that I'm on the team with them to knock out the cancer. And so I wouldn't, and our doctors wouldn't suggest a dose that wouldn't be effective. So we we wouldn't say take one milligram of this because we know that's not helpful. But we do know from studies that these doses are available because they can be effective. And I also reassure them that it's not a one-way road. If they try the smaller dose and feel great, sometimes we do go back up when conditions are different and go back up on the dose. So it's not a permanent change, which makes it a little easier to take that first step. Um, I just, I, I really try to emphasize that it's us against the cancer and uh, we're all on the same team and we're you know, we're really not not um, interested in suggesting a dose that won't that won't help that fight. You know, I want to mention Kathleen. I just I love the way you speak, and and I you know I uh, I think there are very varied experiences that patients have, and part of that, and again, I think there's goodwill on everyone's part. But I think that there is, um, you know, there is both the institutional memory of. Uh, chemotherapy as a paradigm of uh, of care. And also there's just a, a variety of um, kinds of experience that different uh, providers are used to, um, uh, well, I want to say providing, but, uh, you know, so um, I've had, uh, I've had, I've switched uh, places where I've switched oncologists and teams, and I've seen just a huge variety in the kinds of ways that uh, that that people speak to me as a patient and i think you know as a as a patient i would i i feel that that is something that could be addressed um for instance I think that this uh, speaking different languages is something I only realized when I heard Dr. Benjamin Besse speak in Singapore this year. And he was talking about um, uh, one of the uh, kinds of targeted therapies and said something like, oh, uh, having a seven bathroom visits a day would be intolerable. And I, I started to giggle and then I stood up and made a comment and I'm like, oh my God, I'm going to be known as the diarrhea lady in the <laughs> ISLAC community because I said seven visits a day. Oh, that's a, that's a normal day for me. And it was honestly, that was the first time I really realized that we are speaking different languages and we have a different idea of what's, what's, um, you know, become normalized and, and what isn't. And I, as a patient would love the, if there was some sort of um, guide that I could get of what uh, is considered a, a a a class one toxicity, what's a two, what's a three, I would love to know what measurement uh, my doctors are using so I could more accurately be reporting to them because I think things get normalized that the my caregivers don't realize. 
Um, and so I, 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 w- I wish that I knew what we were both saying, because I think that that could more information would help. And I understand this is also an issue of, you know, um, uh, providers feeling like you don't want to overwhelm your patients with information. But I think giving a patient a choice uh, between uh, how how we're going to communicate and what kind of information and how much information is really important. Um, there's sometimes an assumption that uh, you know you don't you don't want to overwhelm, and I think that is an underestimation of a patient's uh, tolerance for more information. Even I think that's another kind of tolerability that, that <laughs> yes. needs measurement. Yes. Yeah, and and I think that's very important, Annabelle. I think that's a good idea also to follow, you know, and um, conversation as toxicity is way of communication preference. And we actually conducted a study that we launched at Dana Farber in the next few weeks hmm. that we asked patients how they prefer to communicate because Gen Sears and millennials, the ones younger patients I treat, they don't like phone calls. But my older patients, you know. Um, really like phone calls. So we are trying to study that, but I'm going to, you know, you mentioned that communication was a challenge, Annabelle, when it comes to chronic toxicities. So Kathleen, for our listeners, for targeted therapy, what are some of the unique chronic toxicities associated with EGFR that you see in patients like Annabelle that have been in therapy for quite some time? Yeah. Um, so the this is this is the 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 bread and butter of my job. I see the patients and help them manage the chronic and long term toxicities, and so I feel like I could go on and on and on. So I'll try to be brief. Um, the thing I talk about most, I would say, on uh, at least on EGFR uh, targeted therapies, we have obviously other targeted therapies in the lung cancer group that might have a, a different profile. But in terms of EGFR uh, inhibiting therapy, uh, rash is rash or skin changes, I should say, uh, is the number one thing. Um, in the early weeks, first few three, four weeks, uh, it's more like the acne rash, which might be pimples or red bumps on the face and arms. Um, you know, we, we see that change over time into very dry skin, um, and the dry skin can show up early or months after, or it kind of can change in the seasons around here in New England. Um, I very often talk about dry skin, dry fingers, January, February, March, and then those phone calls go away as soon as the warm, moist summer months come. So the dry skin, uh, can be, really distracting to people, especially because the uh, fingers can get really dry and cracking on the fingertips is so painful, little fissures on the pads of the fingers. And uh, some of the later side effects on the skin include inflammation around the skin on the fingernails and toenails. And Oftentimes, people don't know that that's a side effect of their EGFR inhibitor. I'll be doing a checkup and I say, how are your toes? Any ingrown toenails? And their eyebrows go up like, how did you know about my ingrown toenail? And I say, that's our fault. That's the Tigriso. So that's one that shows up months later, and it wasn't really on the radar for patients. So that's why I think important um, follow-up is important, not just to take the pill and forget about it. Uh, check in every once in a while with your team so we can talk about those things. Um, Kathleen, that's, I, that's yes. so interesting you say that. Uh, I uh, didn't know that myself. 
myself until I, you know, was a while into treatment. Um, I I call this the death by a thousand cuts. Oh, uh, yes. You know the the yes. fingertip. Um, it, it, it's it, horrible that appear it, it it really it the thing is is this is the issue between i think um as i understand it you know long uh, long term treatment and uh like a kind of chemotherapy mindset where you know you're going to deal with something for a short amount of time and then there's a goal in sight when you're on right. one of these long term treatments it can really wear you down. And I didn't realize also about how dry and skin on my feet would get. I get, I still get this. I get cuts on my feet. The skin opens up and yeah. it bleeds and that can be painful. And, you know, uh, I have a, I am trying to remain sexually active and my toenails look like elephant hooves. And I, I don't think my insurance is going to cover Manny Petties, but I wish it would because I, like I, <laughs> I, understand. You know, I, I don't want to, I mean, this is, it sounds, this is where it sounds, you can sound like, okay, really? Are we talking about this? But, you know, um, I, I'm, I'm, you know, trying to maintain a sense of identity and these things can, can really make you feel, um, you know, my, 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 my toenails have a, weird color. I mean, they really do look like elephant hoofs. I try to keep them polished. And that that's a minor thing because, you know, a, a bigger issue as, as NJ knows, and we've talked about this, and I just wrote this piece in the oncologist journal is the sexual uh, dysfunction uh, side effects. I don't want to interrupt you, Annabelle, but I want to ask because we are running about out of time. So I was speaking yes. the many, because we can talk about so many things over time. Yes. And I went down on our, you know, track sheet to make sure I didn't forget to ask you. <laughs> but now let's talk about sexual health and sexual dysfunction as a chronic toxicity for target therapies. So perfect segue, Annabelle, you were reading my mind. Annabelle, you recently published an opinion article about this matter. Can you share your insights and some of the content included in this article, particularly related to sexual function and chronic toxicities in target therapies? Right. So, uh, start, you know, after starting therapy, I started. And so, um, I didn't, uh, realize this would be an issue and I had not, no one had mentioned this to me, but then I met someone and started to be sexually active and began to get UTIs. And I said this to my doctor numerous times, my oncologist, he said it was unrelated to the Tigriso. My gynecologist um, also, you know, they're not aware of really these targeted therapies. This is a really new thing. Didn't uh, think that there was any relationship to this. And I was getting UTI after UTI. Finally, my oncologist said, you know, why don't you just stop having sex? so much. And I thought, well, this is like, this is, this is one of the fantastic things in my life right now. You're going to take that away from me. You know, can we, can we dream of having some uh, pleasure? What is, what is, what is, what is tolerable? What, maybe this is, maybe this is the best thing that I'm getting from my cancer treatment. And it wasn't until I met NJ at the, uh, World Conference in Vienna, 
that I also became known as the vagina lady. When uh, NJ was speaking about this, I had no idea there was a connection between uh, the Tegriso I was taking and the UTIs. I was, uh, you know, uh, weeping when I met NJ. I was so grateful to hear that there was a connection and that there was something I could do because I felt so isolated. Now, of course, I try to spread NJ's message on all of our chat boards because very often I'll see other women uh, saying this. And um, it's just simply not on people's radar for many reasons that I write about. There's a a taboo, talking about sexual health. And there's, uh, in some cases, a sense that, listen, you should be lucky you're alive and doing well. Do you really think we care about your sex life? And I feel this is something, first of all, that you wouldn't say to a man. And uh, that uh, I uh, feel is so important that it can be so uh, important in terms of your support system, you're feeling good about yourself. And um, Kathleen, I'm, I'm really curious if you hear this in your work. Well, yes, we do. I mean, um, our patients are across the board. So we have everybody from young ages to older ages. And, you know, I think that it's absolutely true. All the effects of these um, medications making you feel tired. If you're having diarrhea and you're dehydrated, you're exhausted. You know, if you're having rash and like you said about your toes, you know, I don't want to have elephant toes. I think all these things add up over time and, really do affect uh, how people feel about themselves and and their ability to to you know connect with people intimately and it's it's a it's a it's a very big part of the chronic toxicity of um, the EGFR inhibitors or targeted therapies well i didn't realize and and this is something nj has i've learned from nj and i, I write about in this piece that which of course makes sense that the the dryness of skin would also lead to dryness of internal skin so that the lining of the vagina is more apt to receive small cuts like your fingers and then bacteria can get in there which is causing you know these UTIs and then also with the diarrhea you have more e coli bacteria hanging around i mean it all made sense to me and i was just uh so grateful to have it put together because you you also feel like you're doing something wrong as a patient mm. why am i getting this what am i doing and and that you feel and you feel isolated so um this was something i feel and i think nj is just i call her the vaginal vaginal health evangelist uh in the lung cancer world and it's 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 so important to so many. And I think as we see, and I write about this, you know, more younger women being diagnosed with uh, lung cancer, this is a really important issue. It's a really important quality of life issue. So I've been writing about my vagina in every medium I possibly can. Thank you. Annabelle, I'm going to put that below my signature. Uh, Seriously. (laughs) So the vagina health evangelist, that's how uh, to the podcast team. That's how I'm going to introduce the next podcast. <laughs> Hi, I'm Dr. Flores, your host for this, also known as the Vagina Health Evangelist. We're about to run out of time, but there's one chronic toxicity question I cannot no ask before we end. And these questions to the two of you. 
And as we need to discount financial toxicity as a chronic toxicity in patients with lung cancer, this can be persistent, worsening with time, and is often under discussed. So I'm going to start with Kathleen, and then I will get your uh, opinions as well, Annabelle, as a patient. So Kathleen, what are your thoughts about financial toxicity in patients with lung cancer and target therapy that have been on therapy for years? And, you know, at the beginning, they may have savings, but eventually savings may run out, funds or grants may run out. Mm. I would love to hear your thoughts, Kathleen. Yes, I agree, NJ. It's certainly a big stress. I, I find, you know, not not just um, you know, over time, even right at the beginning. Uh, sometimes patients go to fill the prescription, and the medication is in a third tier on their prescription plan, and it can be four thousand, five thousand dollars a month. And the shock and fear that's in their hard at that moment, they just, you know, want to pay for it and then start to, to you know, go down this rabbit hole of how am I going to do this every month? And so, you know, we we, we always um, explain to them at the beginning, if there's a large copay, please contact us. We have so many ways to try to help you and get in touch with the um, prescription drug companies for financial aid or the um, free drug programs or a copay card. And um, sometimes we can find another EGFR inhibitor that's covered in the plan at a different rate. Over time, you know, things, patients get more tired or aren't able to keep up with the same job that they once were or other things that are coming up, changes in healthcare, all those other things come up to add extra stresses too. Change, changing healthcare and going through a period where they might be uncovered until they can switch to, you know, uh, Medicare or, or SSI insurance. So, um, we really want to make sure that's not one of the stressors impacting their health. And so we make an important point of connecting them with our social workers who can guide them and advise them on all the supports that are out there. It's hard to ask for and it's hard to admit. And, you know, I think that go that speaks to how we have to have a good relationship seeing our patients again and again over time. So they learn to trust us and learn to tell us what might not come up until, as I say, you know, the, my hand on the doorknob conversation those are the ones that people are afraid to mention, mention to me. Just just as I'm leaving, they say, it's one more thing. And I, I'm always happy that they took that moment to grab me because I know it was hard to bring up. And um, it's really important that we know about it because it impacts health. And my goal is to improve health. And that's one way that we should be you know, acting to help them. Thank you, Kathleen. Annabelle, you have shared some of this uh, with me. And I think it's one of the forums that we share. What is your experience with this chronic financial toxicity? And you mentioned that when you were diagnosed, you were working as a writer. So I would love to hear your perspective as a patient and activist. Yes. So this is a, this is, you know, if the vagina is a taboo subject, finances are even more taboo. I think it's important to note that the leading cause of bankruptcy in the United States are medical uh, related. And, uh, you know, it's also uh, actually a, a global issue. Um, you know, GoFundMe has turned into a de facto health insurance program, which is not sustainable. Uh, I, I experienced from the very beginning uh, a loss of income, as many patients do, just even from the very beginning. And this is something that um, ha is, is often... Yeah, I have to tell you, Kathleen, when you speaking, I um 
I've been in care in three different systems now. It's only one of them where this was ever mentioned to me. It was not oh, brought up at all. That. Let's do that. Yeah, yeah it did sorry. not. No one had, and I think there's a great, uh, there's a, a many patients do not get any kind of counseling in this way. So, um, and I've written about this in the Washington Post as regards to um, health insurance issues. I um, have been thinking about this subject deeply as when I was just meeting with a group of patient advocates in Singapore, we're having breakfast and I said, we're sitting around the table and I said, listen, I'm really curious um, how many of you, everyone looks so good and we're, you know, we're very, we, we, we're, we're not, um, there's a difference between, you know, uh, a poverty level issues and, uh, sustainability issues in terms of care and preparing for your financial future and, you know, a surviving long-term treatment, long-term treatment really takes a, a toll. And I said, how many of us are working the same jobs and bringing the same income as we used to. And there were none of us. And we were sitting in a group that included people who work in construction, uh, an attorney, um, I myself, a writer. I do not have the productivity. I simply cannot keep up on the level that I used to work. We have someone who was in, in communications, all of us, all of us to a person are not uh, earning as much money, and some of us are not working. And this is something that it doesn't appear on the surface, and we've all been impacted. And we sat there for a moment, and I said, do you think our caregivers know this? And everyone said, no, they're not. They're not aware. Uh, this is just not... Um, uh, something that's on people's radars. And uh, I think that, you know, having care teams address this issue, and it's very difficult. This, again, goes to the heart of a loss of identity um, that you experience and finding a new identity, uh, you know, and, and creating a life that uh, works and this issue, I think, is just so important because as uh, targeted therapies, as targeted therapies become more standard, I think this is still you know new for people in general public to understand that you could employ someone uh, who was on a targeted therapy, uh, and that also as a person and, and and that you know that there's an understanding that there might be uh some accommodations that can be made but you can still work um people will also be able to tell their community you know a lot of people in therapy in treatment on targeted therapies aren't saying they have they are they are in treatment there is uh, also um an issue of people not disclosing they're in cancer treatment because they're afraid this will mean oh they'll lose their job this is such a touchy issue and as this becomes more of a standard in in uh in uh treatment of disease of long-term therapies uh it's going to be a real reckoning in our society how we um look at this how we uh, provide for people in therapy and how we talk about this uh, because and and of course i am a big proponent of universal health care 
Uh, I, I, you know, I, I can't even tell you the examples of what people talk to me about in terms of even affording to participate in trials, which can have an impact on your, on your income. It's, there's just a cascaded domino effect of how this affects your finances. And it's, it's, it's really criminal that we don't have a greater safety net. And I think it's really important that care teams address this. And I'm sorry, I've gone on and on, but it's such an important issue. Thank you so much, Annabelle. Unfortunately, we run out of time, but I want to give the two of you the opportunity to say goodbye in your final thoughts uh, for this special episode of Lung Cancer Concierge. Kathleen? Thank you, NJ, and thank you, Annabelle, for sharing your story with us. Um, so it's a lot I've learned today, and I'll, I'll take that back to my clinic and, uh, you know, hopefully treat patients even better in the future. I think cancer care has come a long way, and uh, targeted therapies are some of the major parts of that progress. Um, I was working in oncology in the 90s when chemo was the best option, and here we are with medications you can take at home without the... Uh, you know, chemo associated side effects like the, the, you know, the heavy vomiting and the hair loss and the low blood counts. And that said, we have to stay cognizant of the many hardships that come with um, daily anti-cancer therapy. Like Annabelle said, it's these side effects that are ever present and sometimes uh, underreported that um, can really weigh on people. And I think it's important for us as providers to to, to listen and, and to ask the right questions to make sure that patients know that they're in a safe space to bring those things up and uh, that way we can help them live the best lives possible on treatment for a long time. Thank you, Kathleen, not only for being here, for everything you do every day. Annabelle, any final thoughts before we close the episode? First of all, I'm so grateful to be sitting here with uh, you, NJ, and Kathleen. I feel like you two represent such a, a, a great amount of sunlight and uh, real progress and hope and, uh, and, and are at the forefront of thinking about how we uh, and how patients are treated in long-term therapies. It's so exciting to hear you. I want to take us on tour. I want to. I want to go to every provider around the country and and introduce these discussions. They're so important, and I and I I want to see everyone get the benefit. I feel so lucky, and as a patient advocate, that's one of the things I'm committed to. Um, is not only I tell people uh, who I I talk about this in social media, I will speak to anyone, you know, and also I want to say to patients listening, it's not just me. There are support groups out there of patients and there's patient advocates who are so motivated to help share knowledge. And this is a, a really amazing community. And I, I, I think um, the uh, ISLAC and, and the community of uh, lung cancer providers, patient advocates is extraordinary in its inclusiveness and amplifying amplifying patients' voices. And I so appreciate the chance to report back to you and to be in conversation with you. It's so important. And you, for me, model the ideal kinds of communication that we all work through together. And it's just a, a privilege to um, uh, be a part of these conversations. So thank you so much. 
Thank you once again to our two special guests and thanks to everyone for listening to Lung Cancer Considered, the official ISLC podcast. We hope that you will tune in regularly to give us a listen. You can hear us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify. You can also find us in the ISLC.org or own page under the news tab and you can catch up with our episodes. Thank you, everyone. Have a good day. Thank you for listening to Lung Cancer Concert. You can find all our podcasts on our website, islc.org, in our newsroom, or on SoundCloud. Please take a moment to rank, like, write comments, and share your favorite episodes with your colleagues. 